Thank you, Hugh. Thank you, those at the back, my wife included. Sorry about that. Okay, so you can hear me now. We're looking at the final words of Matthew's Gospel and uh, Jesus' final words of all just before he ascended. But I thought I'd start, given that, with some last words of some other famous people. And I've chosen five that might raise a smile. And they're apparently all true. So here we go. Humphrey Bogart. Anyone know his final words? I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. (laughs) Number two, Stan Laurel. I'd rather be skiing. Interesting. Uh, W.C. Fields, anyone know much about him? Heard of him, not so sure who he was, but... Anyway, on his deathbed, uh, he was actually found reading his Bible, and this was not characteristic of him. So uh, the people who visited said, what are you doing reading the Bible? And he said, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> and uh, here's another one. Anyone, anyone a fan of Groucho Marx? Yeah, we all are, aren't we? Uh, his last words were, either I'm dead or my watch has stopped. <laughs> and finally, Karl Marx. Apparently no relation, and uh, whose uh, comic ability is, is, is not widely known. Uh, his last words were addressed to his housekeeper who was caring for him as he was passing away. And he, shot, he uh, sat up and said firmly, go away. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. So there we go, that's Karl Marx. But of course the words, the final words that we're focusing on today are not Jesus on the cross They are the words before his ascension. And as such, they are his final words of instruction to his disciples and to all, including us, who would subsequently follow him. So they are enormously important. And I'm going to cover three things taken from this passage on how we can play our part in seeing the Great Commission fulfilled. And they are the preparation. How do we get ready for the Great Commission? What can we learn from this passage about that? Second, the content of it. What is the Great Commission? What did Jesus actually ask them and us to do? And then thirdly, the delivery. How can we actually see it fulfilled? So that's where we're heading, but first, let's pray. Father, thank you for microphones that work. Thank you for great minds and great wits who in the past have said things that inspire us, that make us laugh, that cause us to think. And we thank you most of all for your son who left a legacy so much greater than anyone else by whom we have eternal life and who spoke words of complete wisdom and truth telling us everything we possibly need to know. So in this final extract of the gospel, where he speaks on that mountaintop, would you allow the importance, the urgency, and the absolute privilege of fulfilling the Great Commission of playing our part in seeing many others come to faith and grow in their faith. Father, would you just excite us and inspire us about that today as we reflect on the words Jesus said 
and how the early church responded. Thank you, Father. Amen. So, how do we get ready? And the answer is in the first two verses, if you've got it open in front of you, where we see how the disciples themselves prepared. They first got themselves to the place geographically, where Jesus had told them they needed to be, which was a particular mountain in Galilee. But the thing I really want to focus on now is how they also got themselves into the place spiritually they needed to be by worshipping him. Now, we could well say, well, they would, wouldn't they? If Jesus literally suddenly appeared in front of us, well, of course, we would worship him too. But actually, he is here, isn't he? Of course he's here. He's here by his spirit. He's here inside us. He really did rise from the dead. And that's as true for us as it was for them, even though for them it only just happened. It should blow our mind as much as it should blow theirs. And so because he's here, because he rose from the dead, then just as they worshipped him, so too should we. At every opportunity, and we have opportunities every day, don't we? Because it's not just about singing. It's not just about prayers of worship. We can live our whole life as worship if we offer it and do it for Christ. And why is worship so important? Well, as the slide there says, it connects us to God. And it does so much more than that. It's what he deserves. If God is God, then of course we should worship him, Father, Son and Spirit. And it reminds us of who God is and what he's like. For example, his power, his love, his faithfulness. And what focusing on those things through worship does for us is it increases our confidence that if God is God, then he can and he will do amazing things. Of course he will, even through us. And it increases our motivation, reminding ourselves of God's love and God's compassion for every lost sinner, including us. And it unlocks more of our love and compassion for others in a similar situation to the one we were in. And it increases our expectation that if God is faithful, his purposes will be fulfilled. The gospel really will go out to all nations and will go on doing so in every generation, including in one as difficult and hard-hearted as ours. And let's be honest, it is. Which is not to say that we won't have doubts. Possibly about those fundamental attributes of God's character, we're bound to think, is that really true? Is God real? Does he really love me? Sometimes we question that. Best place to go is just to go back to God's words and see what he says about himself. Perhaps more commonly though, we doubt whether God is really interested in us, whether he can use us, whether he would choose to, whether we're up to it. Maybe they're the things we question whether we have any gifts that God wants to use. And yet when we are doubting, this passage we've just read is so reassuring that even at this moment of epiphany on the mountain, some of the disciples doubted. We can assume that Jesus knew this. He always seemed to know what people were thinking as they responded to him. 
And yet, in the light of his knowledge of their doubts, what didn't he do? He didn't say, okay, well, if you're doubting me, off we go. He didn't say this, uh, what I'm about to say is only for the people who aren't doubting. He said it to them all. He included them all in the Great Commission, for he knew they could all still do it. They could all still be used, even doubting Thomas. And ask any Indian in, in, uh, any Christian in India, and they'll tell you all about what he did. Widely believed to have taken the gospel to India. And we too can still be used, even in our moments of doubt, doubt which are so natural, if we turn to him, if we choose to worship him, if we choose to put our faith in him, then we will play our part in what his spirit is seeking to do to grow his kingdom in our places of work, where we live, in our front lines, in our families, in our friendship circles, and in the lives of those that God will simply put on our path if we ask him to do that. We can be used. We just need to react rightly to the doubts when they come and do what the disciples did. Worship, not run away from Jesus, not hide from him. And instead, to seek him to speak truth into our lives so the doubts start to melt away. And to listen when he says, I have authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And what does that mean? It means he's in control. We're on the winning side. And then if we think about what he then goes on to say about what the disciples would do in the light of his authority, what we would do in the light of his authority He's saying that authority has been delegated to us, which means we can pray with authority, praying in his name, which means praying in accordance with his will. And both by so doing, we can confront Satan, overcome evil, bind what he is trying to do, bring breakthroughs into people's lives, set the captives free, extend the kingdom, see people come to faith, and see people of faith matured, infused, discipled, fired up, so that the rest of the world sees them and says, I want some of that too. That's what we're seeking to do. That's what Jesus longs to do by his authority, by his spirit, in the hearts and minds of fearful, but perfectly and fearfully, wonderfully made, adopted children of God. So, if that's how God sees us, what are we to do? What are we being sent in the, Go Com- in the Great Commission to do? And the word I want to highlight is that simply this. We need to go. We need to go. And that's really the message to us all. Now, admittedly, the first disciples, what they had to do was wait Wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. But from that point on, going was exactly what they were called to do. As the Christian faith spread across the world, and in the same way, the Great Commission calls us to go. To go to where the unreached, the lost, the not yet Christians actually are, telling them about him. 
Now the other passage we heard at nine o'clock and the other passage that the life groups will focus on this week is from Romans 10. And it contains these wonderfully uh, inspiring, heartwarming words. I'll read them to you now. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone is preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And why are the feet beautiful? Any guesses? Because the purpose of feet is to go. They're beautiful because they cause that person to walk and to bring the message of hope to whoever needed it where they are rather than waiting for them to come to him and to to her. So, what are we to go and do? We're to go and tell them about Jesus with the aim that disciples will be made. But if we leave it there, If we think that the job is done when someone becomes a Christian, that's not the Great Commission. For the crucial part two of the commission, there's yes, includes baptism, which is a public direct declaration of coming to faith, a symbol of it. But the crucial bit that Christians and churches can so easily meet is the second part, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. That's the Great Commission, which we must absolutely leave in. For it's making Jesus our Lord, the boss, the main man. And so obedience is crucial. And it's crucial in, in, in intention in every single thing. Not just the bits we're comfortable with, not just the bits we like, not just the easy bits, but making him Lord over all our priorities, our time, our finances, our habits, our vices, our relationships, our career, our possessions, our family, our retirement, our bodies, our dreams, our deepest wishes and hopes and ambitions. And so the Great Commission is as much about discipleship as it is about disciple-making. It's not just sharing our faith with non-believers, but also building up Christians in their faith, And that's why connecting in our vision is not just about connecting with God. It's not just about connecting with people outside the church. It's equally about better connections inside the church. For the principle is the same. If we want to create the right to speak truth into the life of a a non-believer or into the life of a believer, we first have to connect to get to know them, to earn their respect and their trust, to create their context in which it's a safe place to talk about private and intimate things. And ideally, by becoming their friend. For all the surveys about people coming to faith, or even simply coming to a course like Alpha, show that a very high proportion are brought by a friend. And even if a friend hasn't literally brought them because they're not able to, you can be almost certain a friend has influenced them shared faith with them, or at the very least, witnessed through the character of their lives. So, busy Christians, here's the question I've got for you. Have you got space in your lives for new friends? And if you haven't, 
I want to suggest that you need to make some, especially with people outside the church. And that's why one of the the staff members here asked me recently if they could work slightly less hours so they could take up a hobby and get to know some new non-Christians in the town. That's why I said, yes, of course, I think I might do that as well. For it was exactly what they needed to be doing if they were to play their part in God's vision for St. Paul's of going out to where the not yet Christians actually are, which, believe it or not, generally speaking, is not here in this building. Which brings me on to another really important point, which is that the Great Commission isn't just intended to reach those who like going to church. Because Jesus didn't actually say very much about going to church at all. He spent a lot more time talking about making disciples, not making churchgoers. So if you are able to make a disciple and to teach a disciple to obey Jesus by meeting up with them in a pub or in a coffee shop or at work, in the Christian Union, in the lift, in your life group, having a walk, by inviting them around for a meal, by watching a football match with them, going for a walk, for a cycle ride, whatever it is, if you can create that context in which you can actually have a one-to-one conversation with them about where they're at and where you're at, that's actually likely to achieve more than bringing them to church for the next 20 weeks. It's true, isn't it? I'm not saying don't ever come to church. I'm just saying that the most fruitful ministry is when you're being used one-to-one or even in a small group with someone who isn't normally there. That's where the really powerful work is done. If you think back to your own journey, there may well have been someone doing that with you. Certainly as I listened to Paloma and Paul White share their faith over December, there was someone critical who did exactly that in their lives. So, people aren't generally transformed by church services. They are transformed because individual Christians invest in their relationship with that person and that person then invests in their own relationship with their Heavenly Father. Church becomes a place in which we celebrate that growth that's been going on between Sundays and a place where we point people to make their own investment in their relationship with their Heavenly Father and take encouragement from what he's doing in our lives. That's what church is. Ministry. The Great Commission is what's going on during the week. What's going on that's not here, but where the people from here are being sent out from here to have those conversations with anyone on their front line who's willing to talk to them, which might one day somehow lead on to something that brings spiritual fruit. Now, why do I say that? Why am I being honest about the fact that most people in our society don't actually want to go to church or don't think they do because their last experience was a negative one? Why am I telling you that? Because I'm also telling you that, believe it or not, a very high proportion of them, according to the surveys, are still interested in spiritual things. They're still looking for a purpose in their lives. They still want to believe in something. They still want to be part of a community that brings the best out of them. And a high proportion of them still pray. And in this community, an awful lot of them like coming to Chris Dingle on Christmas Eve as well. So there is something to work with. But if we restrict our contact with them to whether we happen to see them in church, 
we only reach about a tenth. We've got to get out there. At the school gate. At the sports centre. In the bars. In the restaurants. In the workplaces. In the social clubs. In the sheltered housing. Wherever it might be. Get out there. And have fun. It starts with just enjoying things together. Whether it's walking or cycling or eating or drinking. Whatever it is. Just get yourself out there. And remember this. This is my final thing I want to highlight this morning. We're not alone. You can have the next slide, Stefan. Jesus is with us. So what does that mean? It's not just a nice-to-know thing. It's not just that he can see us, and so we can go back and reflect with him later on how it went. It's that he actually wants to hold our hand, which means he's actually leading us, which means he's actually keeping us strong. And he's the one that can see the future as well. We might have a little idea of what might happen later today or tomorrow. Jesus can see all our tomorrows and he can see in other people's hearts as well. Let me ask you this. If Jesus is God, does he know who in your vast set of acquaintances, including the people you haven't met yet, who you probably will meet this week, does he know which of them are hungry, which of them are open, which of them are looking for meaning and purpose in their lives? Which of them have always believed in God but never known what he's really like? Of course he does. Of course he does. My advice to you all would make every day a day in which you begin in prayer and say, God, whatever you want to use me to do, whoever you want to lead me to talk to, whoever you want me to encourage, to show love to, to listen to, whoever you want me to help, this week, whoever you want me to stop and ring up to find out how they're doing this week, whoever you want me to visit this week, whoever you want me to bump into this week, whoever you want me to hear about this week so that I can pray for them, would you make those things happen? If we do that, that's when the Great Commission starts to be fulfilled. And if we do that for each other, holding each other to account, saying we're all going to do it, and next time we get back together, let's find out how we got on. Would you like that? You'll like it if it's happened. And if you think it's going to happen, it will happen. For many of us, we only need a few stories each week, and that would give us side up, wouldn't it? Okay, so we're going to do that. So I think there's just one little problem that's left. Because we know it's urgent. We know what the gospel is. It's this. The starting point of all achievement is desire. I'm not aware if you know the person who wrote that. He was one of the early uh, self-help writers of the late 19th century in America. But you see that quote all over the place. Because it's recognising not just by Christians, but by everyone else as well. That you never really achieve anything difficult. And let's be clear, the Great Commission is difficult in our culture, in our context. You don't achieve anything difficult unless you truly, truly want it in your hearts. So if you don't want it, it's not going to happen. But what if you know you should want it, but you don't want it? We ask. 
We ask for it. And we reflect on who God is and what he's given for us, which took a man onto another hilltop who was nailed to a cross, who suffered excruciating things, was beaten and whipped and abused and persecuted and humiliated. And he did it for us. He did it for us. Every one of us. We didn't deserve it. But he did it for us. And then he rose from the dead and it blew everyone's mind away. And he appeared on a mountain. And he said, look, you scruffy little bunch of uh, nobodies. You're going to change the world. All authority has been given to me. I'm going. But I'm sending you the spirit. The spirit that led me. The spirit of Jesus that enabled me to do miracles. Me to build all of this huge number of disciples and you can now do it too you have the spirit you have the commission you have my words you have my authority so go go I love you so the greatest commandment to you is to love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbour as yourselves. And that means love your neighbour so much you want to get to know them even though you've already got enough friends. You make space and you love them enough that you're willing to bring an embarrassing subject into the conversation at the moment the Holy Spirit prompts you and it's not Brexit. It's not, how's your sex life? It's, what are you living for? What can I pray for you? What are you hoping might happen in your life in the years to come? Have you got any unanswered questions? What makes you get up in the morning? What thing in the last few weeks has given you the most joy? What was the happiest time of your life? What were your parents like, your grandparents? On your deathbed, what would you most like to have done? What would be your last words? What do you hope people say about you at your funeral? What do you hope your children will grow up to become? If you could do one thing in your life, what would it be? Okay, you don't have to write them down. But they're just questions that I'm making up. The point is, they're relatively natural ways of talking about really important things. Hopefully in a way that wasn't too cringy. Give it a try. You can do it. And ask God for the desire. Ask God for the passion, the love burning in you that becomes visible, that kindles into something so bright that everyone you come across can't miss it. And stop doing the church stuff that gets in the way. Don't be burdened down by rotors and chores. You're not going to share faith 
with anyone effectively if you're feeling guilty about it. We don't need any guilt. We just need to remind ourselves it's fun. That it's Jesus' power. We just need to get out there. See what happens. Have conversations. And then pray. Every day as if that day might be the most important day in someone's life that you meet that day. Amen. Now what we're going to do is, is watch a, a lovely little video actually. It's not very long. I'll just warn you in one point you will uh, recognise that it's American in origin. But uh, it applies to all of us. I love it. It just captures visually what we need to be as church and what we need to be as individual Christians. So we're going to watch that and then we're going to have a prayer response time that follows that. So enjoy. Enjoy.